a Bible, and you can keep that Bible if you need it. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're continuing in our study through the book of Deuteronomy. And you know, it's been quite, quite an adventure in Deuteronomy. I have mentioned before, the last time I think I taught, that Deuteronomy is basically broken down into three separate sections, or three sermons, if you will. And people divide it differently because there's overlap. Some people would say chapters 1 through 3 is where the division comes, and others 1 through 4, even up through chapter 6. But in general, the first section of Deuteronomy, this first part of this book, Moses is looking back on the events of the past, what God did, in other words. And then this middle section that we're entering into tonight, Moses here is redirecting them to the issues of the immediate future, what God is doing right now. Now later on, when we get to chapter 27 and beyond, we'll be looking ahead as to what God is going to do. But right now we're going to be focusing in on on what God is doing now. Remember, they're about to settle into the promised land. They're right there on the edge, and they need to be aware of the dangers. They need to be aware of the new environment and the peoples that they will be bumping into, but as well, the expectations that are going to come with this new life, this new place, that everything's going to change for them drastically. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. Everything is going to change, and we see these spiritual parallels, if you will, to our lives today as we look through this book, you will see connections. Because oftentimes we read Deuteronomy and go, well, how does this apply to me today? I'm a New Testament Christian. We shall see. So it's another reason why we want to look at this book. It's important because there are these spiritual parallels. And in chapter 7, we're going to um, basically, it focuses on warnings and promises. And there's a great key verse here, the one I have there on your screen. And it's found in, uh, of course, chapter 7, verse 9, and it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. This is such a powerful verse, and I think in so many ways it sums up a big part of Deuteronomy. It certainly sums up a big part of this chapter, and it's one of those passages where we just hold on to that. It's one of those ones that we remember that God is faithful with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Now, do we do that perfectly all the time? No. Only one man did. Jesus. But the heart in which we try means a lot. So Moses begins here, chapter 7, grab your Bibles, open up to verse 1. Moses begins this section with instruction and a warning. And this is what we read together, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. I want to stop here just for a second. Because Moses begins this chapter, like I said, by giving these instructions. Now remember, they're not in the land yet. They're right there on the border. They're they're ready to cross in, but Moses wants them to hear from his own mouth these commands of God. He, He wants 
to be no mistake that they're all paying attention, that the authority God has given him is going to come directly from him, and they're ready to cross into the land. But what I love about it, remember, is they're not, not only are they not in the land, but he is so confident when he says these instructions. He says, when the Lord your God, not if, when the Lord your God. And I love how he just admits right off the top, he just admits that, by the way, um, the nations around you when you enter the land, they're going to be greater, they're going to be stronger, they're going to be prettier, I don't know. And you're going to be outnumbered. He says there's going to be seven nations that are going to outnumber them. It's like, what is it, seven to one? He lists these seven nations, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Amorites. These seven nations mentioned here are representative of the inhabitants of, Can of Canaan. That, that, that's what he's trying to help us to understand. These people had been in the land long before God made his promise to Abraham. You remember that? When God pulled Abraham aside, he said, I'm giving you this land. These people had been there, some estimate, up to 400 years before God ever made an oath with Abraham. They were established. These people had fortified cities. They had wells. They had crops. They had a system of government. They had many, many things that were going on here. But God wanted them out. Now, as you study this stuff out, you'll come to know that if you study their religion, if you study their literature, even their archaeological remains, you'll come to know that this is one of the most depraved culture, cultures that ever walked the face of the earth. These people were challenged in everything. They sacrificed their children to pagan gods. They, as a form of worship, there was plenty of sexual activity that they used as a form of worship to their pagan gods. They're discovering through archaeology that many of these peoples from this time died of sexually transmitted diseases. And you can just imagine when there is no moral law and when you use sex as a form of worship to these pagan gods, there's no new modern medical medicines. These diseases are being trans transmitted all over the place. There's no modern medicines in and they're finding that these people probably didn't live real long because of the illnesses. Look, they didn't have laws on diet, dietary laws. They didn't have laws about hygiene and all these different things that the Jews did or that we do today. They didn't have a conscience. It was more like, ah, live and let live. They didn't know right from wrong. And God was just flat out sick of it. He just said, this is the time. So to the, Jew, uh, to the Jews who are coming into the land, they know all these things. They know that they're stronger, they're greater, they're outnumbered. They know that they're less. They know how afraid they were the last time they tried to enter. They know that these people don't have a conscience. And they're like, kind of like, so run that by me again, God. So, so what was that? You want us to take out these fearless, no conscience having, baby murdering, loving, big strong people who outnumber us seven to one? And God says, yes. You see, by design, Moses 
is emphasizing that all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. He's letting them know that you can't do it on your own. He wants to make it so obvious to them and to the world and to the rest of the nations that this couldn't possibly have happened in their own power. That God had to be with them. It was him and not you. It says, the Lord will clear away many nations before you in verse 1. And when the Lord your God, del- and the Lord your God delivers them before you in verse 2. It's powerful when you think about what it is to depend on and to lean into God. Now I want to spend several minutes on this phrase there in verse 2. Then you shall utterly destroy them. This, this phrase, church, gets such a bad rap. God is so mean. What do you mean he's utterly going to destroy them? You mean kids too? He gets such a bad rap, and yet you see this phrase is all over the Old Testament. It's in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You see this phrase coming up, but let me remind you of something. In Genesis 15... Now, I'm just going to paraphrase a few verses. If you wanted to get the full context, you could read 13 through 21. But in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. And then in verse 16, Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites. Amorite is not yet complete. God told Abraham that the land that you are now in, Abraham, one day I'm going to give this to your descendants. But that's going to take some time. It's not going to happen next month. One, he don't have many descendants. But first, he says, your descendants are going to be taken off to a foreign land and enslaved. Speaking of Egypt, for 400 years But one day, one day, Abraham, they will return to this very spot, to this land. And I'm going to give this land to them, but that's not today. And here's why. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The iniquity, it's, it's or the sins, the iniquity or the sins of the Amorites is referring to the civilization living there is not yet complete. That's what he's telling them. That that was then. But now he says, you shall utterly destroy them because now the time is here. Their sins collectively have surpassed the mercy and the grace of God. But that didn't happen overnight. We're talking hundreds of years. And God's saying, look, I'm not going to hold back anymore. And you, your descendants, Abraham, are going to be my instrument, my sword of destruction. When mercy and warnings have not been enough, he says, then I'm going to use your descendants as the sword to utterly destroy these sinful people. And yes, utterly destroy does mean men, women, and children. And it's often been thought of as unethical for a loving God to include children and women in the total destruction of a city. 
But I declare to you, in fact, it may be an amazing demonstration of patience, of, of the patience of God with sinful man. Remember I said hundreds of years they were there before Abraham. You, it's, some people say up to 830 years, and you can calculate that by saying, well, Abraham didn't possess the land, Isaac didn't possess it, Jacob didn't possess it, you add up how long they lived, Joseph didn't possess it, then they, the descendants were in Egypt as a slave for 400 years, it was a long time that they were stuck. But God gave them every opportunity to change and to repent. They knew of God. They, they knew of Israel's God. They knew of what happened at the Red Sea. They knew what happened with the ten plagues in Egypt. They knew God's or Israel's God does not play around. They, had, they were awoke, but they didn't change. It was the last thing on their mind. But there are several things that we need to understand about this passage in context to fully understand this command to utterly destroy them. They're being asked to utterly destroy them because of their wickedness. God was going to, was dispossessing them, as it says, from the land. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9 in verse 4 and 5. It talks about their wickedness. I'm not going to read it because of time. So that's one thing. Because of their wickedness, they're being kicked out. But also, they persisted in their hatred of God. Look down into verse 10. God repays those who hate him to their faces <laughs> to destroy them. He will not delay with them who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Had they repented, God could have, could have spared them. Their repentance would have been their salvation, but it was the last thing that they were at all concerned with. And then thirdly, the Canaanites were just a moral cancer. Let, let's read on the rest of verse 2. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Verse 3. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their ashram, and burn their graven images with fire. Now, stop right here, because when I first read that, the end of verse 2 and 3 there, I got a little confused at first, because... Didn't God say, just say to wipe them out? And now he's saying, don't show, don't make a covenant and don't show them favor and don't marry them. How are you going to do that when there's nobody left? Because you wiped them all out. So I was kind of confused there, but this is the fact. They didn't utterly wipe out the people, did they? And they actually did intermarry with them. We see that all throughout Israel's history. It was such a chronic problem with these people. But it seems that God knows that we can never fully obey the law. It's like God already knew in advance after this is the tough circumstances. These are this is what's going to happen if you disobey me, if you intermarry with them, make a covenant with them. It's like God already knew that we were not going to follow, no matter what the consequences were. 
I think in many ways this is a picture of Christ. Grace. Jesus knew that we could not follow the law completely. Paul talked about it constantly. That we, we cannot follow. It goes to show us that, that God knows that we are incapable of fully keeping the law. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of the God. The glory of God, the Bible says. God lays down the law and we can't keep it. That's just the way it's been since the beginning. Adam, the people of Noah's time, it's just happened over and over again. God lays down the law and we just can't keep it. It's a classic story of the law versus grace. Now listen, church. They entered into the promised land with the law. But we enter into the promises of Christ, not with the law, but through grace. Sorry, I was one slide off there. Let's read verse 4. For they will turn away, pardon me, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. Now, even one of them is what he's telling us. Even a single child left behind had the potential of introducing idolatry and immorality into the culture that would rapidly and eventually destroy the Israelites. And you go, the children, come on. Like, what do you mean? Well, you want to think about something that will really bake your noodle? Think about this. What if it was God's mercy to take the children then, before the age of accountability? We don't know the mind of God at all times and in all things. But for us today, it's a powerful lesson. It's a reminder about, about not being yoked, unevenly yoked with an unbeliever or bound, as the New American Standard says. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness. And, and you guys understand what yoked means? Does everybody understand that? You know, the animals, they had the big wooden yoke that connects them so they could plow the field. But if these, yoke, if these oxen are two different sizes, or one's aggressive, one's gentle, or one's, you know, strong and one's weak, they, they don't work together they're unequally yoked. They can't perform the task that's set before them. Instead of working together, they work at odds with each other. And that's the same with marriages. I've been in counseling for a long time. And it's one of the most super challenging things that I counsel is when I get a couple. And one of them is a believer and one is not. And I often like to ask them, how did, this, how did you guys meet? And the one will say, I was a Christian, and I met him, I fell in love, and I just thought I can make him a Christian. And he came. Early on, he was there. He, he showed an interest in church, and he was coming to things, and it was the Bible, and he did devotions, or she. But then all that started to change. Now, I don't care about your church. I'm not listening. I'm not ever going. In fact, you're not giving any money to that. It's just, it snowballs 
I've seen it. Now, sometimes it works. Sometimes you see this in, praise God, over years, the other person comes around, and, but the struggle's real. There is a real, genuine struggle when a believer and an unbeliever come into wedlock. Now, verse 5. Let's read verse 5 again real quick. But thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images in fire. Now remember, these people have been living in the wilderness for the past 40 years. Talk about tired. I'm surprised they were even able to fight in battle. But notice that he's telling them to destroy their religion. Not their buildings, not their crops, not their animals in this particular case. Sometimes you see that, but not here. These cities, these initial places that they were going to get, these are going to be gifts for them so that they wouldn't have to start over and start their, whole, their own culture from scratch with sticks and stones and buildings and digging wells. These were all to be gifts for them so they wouldn't have to stop, start from scratch. So look. The truth is they deserve to die for their sins. Hundreds of years, 800 years perhaps of patience. They continued in their hatred of God and bottom line, they were a moral cancer. And so God said, take them out. Verse six, he tells them, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. How encouraging is that? Verse seven, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now therefore, pardon me, now therefore that the Lord your God he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which, which I am commanding you today to do them. Now look, the Jews were a chosen people. The Bible says it all over the place. That, I know that's not the most popular thing to hear in our world today, that the Jews were a chosen people. But verse 8 tells us that they were chosen because he loves them and he wanted to keep his oath with their forefathers and through them, as we all know, the whole world would come to know him and be saved. They were chosen not because they outnumbered the other peoples. In fact, it was just the opposite. They were the fewest. They were the weakest. Look, it's still in many ways, as far as numbers, the same today. Like, do you hear of the Jebusites or the Gergesites? Or, do you hear of any of those peoples? No, but you, these same descendants are still alive today. The smallest of all. They're still alive and they're still doing strong today. One of the most, ten most powerful countries in the world. But church, you too are a chosen people. Well, how do you know that? 
How do you know if you've been chosen? Because Jesus tells us that. He says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Paul told the Colossians, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. But I know someone may ask some point, someone listening perhaps, well, why should I care if I've been chosen? What's the big deal if I was chosen? Because salvation begins with being chosen. And I believe that the Lord has chosen the entire world. But the problem is, the entire world has not chosen him back. God, God knows. He's the beginning. He's the end. He knows in advance who is going to choose him back. And he goes on to remind them of how he brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt. And he sums up this section with this interesting admonishment. He gives them his promise and then he contrasts it with this warning. Verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant, his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not, not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. He's saying, which side do you want to be on? The loving kindness? The kind that has a vision for you? Or the one that's going to get in your face one day? It's up to us. Now in verse 12, we get to the blessings. You got the instruction and the warning, and now verse 12, the blessings. Let's read verse 12. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, and, and increase your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, there will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will, re will, will remove from you all sickness, and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. Now again, you think about all the laws, that, the dietary laws, and the laws that had to do with hygiene. Remember cleanliness or someone had these skin lesions and, and unclean, unclean and you got to be outside the camp for this many days and then there has to be the sacrifice. There was all these things dealing with dietary laws and hygiene. God was probably just protecting his people from the diseases that ravaged these other nations. They didn't understand microorganisms. They had no knowledge about those things. So God was protecting them. This is a primitive culture. These ancient cultures died out because Israel followed God's law. I mean, they didn't know these things and they died out. Israel didn't because they followed God's law. Verse 16 you shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver you to. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for they will be a snare to you. Verse 17, 
If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw and the sign and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you were afraid. Let's stop right here for a sec. Look, Moses knew the hearts of his fellow Israelites. He knew. He knew they would remember how 40 years earlier the Anakites had made their hearts melt. The Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. Who can, beyond cure, who can understand it? So he wanted to set their hearts for battle by, by giving them the proper perspective. Now listen. Moses is simply urging them to concentrate, not on the strength of their enemies, but on the greatness of their God. He's like, focus in, not on the strength of your enemies, but on the greatness of your God. And it's such a good lesson for us. They had seen the miraculous defeat of Pharaoh in Egypt. They saw the ten plagues. They knew of those things. They knew about the Red Sea. They, they knew the mighty hand of God was with the Israelites. And Israel could expect to see the same thing repeated, the destruction of their, his enemies in this land. Verse 19, the Lord your God will do the same. Now, we need to do the same. We need to remember what great things God has done in our lives when we start to struggle. When, when we are facing our giants, when we are facing those insurmountable things that were outnumbered, they're stronger, they're better, and that helps us be confident in the future when we remember the great things God has done in our past. It gives us security about the current and the future. I'll never forget when, you guys probably know my daughter Bailey. Several years ago, we went through the battle of our lives. The struggle was so real. She got super sick and we thought she was going to pass. And I spent eight days in children's hospital with her. And before I left, we had no idea what was wrong. And my wife, faithful prayer warrior, and all of you sending me texts and emails and prayers and praying for Bailey. And many of you end your prayers with the Lord's will be done. It's a godly thing to do. We want God's will to be done. But after 20 days of very little sleep, I had it. And my wife had prayed for my daughter, we're trying to get her in children's hospital. She'd lost 30 pounds in six weeks, unconscious 20 hours a day. When I heard, your will be done, just, would you stop saying that? I'm like, what? Would you quit saying God's will be done? What if God's will is to take her? I am not okay with that. It's just a reality. It's where I was. I was as far down as I can ever remember being. I collapsed and I just fell down and cried. And when I woke up, I realized that I was telling God I don't trust you. I was trusting in doctors, but I wasn't trusting God no more. And doubt, when I woke up, I grabbed my wife and I said, no matter what happens with Bailey, from this moment on, we're choosing hope and we're going to choose joy. No matter what happens, no matter what God's will is for her. 
Doubt was pushed back for us that day. I remembered what Bailey had already been through in her life, how day one of her birth, she had an intestinal surgery and they said there's very small chance she'll live. She was born with Down syndrome. Before she was a year old, she had an open heart surgery. She had a hole in her heart and she passed on the operating table and they revived her. And yet God came through every time. And we just think of, and we were chosen to give a special love to a special little girl. How blessed we are. And here I am worried about this. Emily, from now on, we choose hope and we choose joy. And we went there and a miracle did happen. And I think it's just, it's what we need to do. If we're going to see victory, we remember what God's done in the past. It gives us confidence about the now and great confidence about the future. Verse 20. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. So what's going on here? It's talking about God's going to send a hornet against them and he's going to clear the way little by little and these wild beasts are going to grow too numerous for them. But God is just simply saying as if Everything I've already reminded you about thus far isn't enough. There's always the hornet. I'm going to sick the hornet on him. Like, he's going to sick the green hornet on him. You guys remember the green hornet? He's going to go Bruce Lee on him. It's so cool because some of you don't even know what the green hornet is. I get it. Some people, some scholars, they, they believe that the hornet is to be taken literally. That these hornets are going to come before him and chase him out. I, when in doubt, I usually go with literal translation. That's me. But others say that this refers to the Egyptian army. But this is what we do know. This is what I'll tell you. We do know that the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel, they were fearful of Israel because they heard of the Red Sea crossing, as I mentioned. They heard of what happened in Egypt. They heard how they'd been roaming in the wilderness and everywhere they went, they wiped everybody else out in most cases. They knew what happened if you opposed the Lord. But right here, God is saying that God would overthrow Israel's enemies into great confusion. When they came against them and they were outnumbered, there was going to be a divinely inspired panic that would engulf the Canaanites and render them helpless in battle as if there's hornets, you know, running around swatting and you can't fight because you're being stung. That, that's the image. That's what we know. They were afraid and God was going to find a way of panicking them. You see this throughout the Bible. He's saying in verse 21, look, don't be intimidated by them. Your God is among you. Your God is awesome. Your God will get rid of these nations bit by bit. It's not going to happen all at once. He says you're not going to be able to wipe them out all at once because wild animals will take over and overwhelm you. 
Now that's, it's like a jungle, it sounds like. But God, you're God. He'll move them out of your way. He'll throw them into a huge panic until there's absolutely nothing left. In verse 24, we read, He will deliver their kings into your hand so that you will make their name perish from under heaven. No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house and, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it and you shall utterly abhor it. For it is something banned. So the Israelites are being told to get serious about the things that could snare them into sin. The things that could pull them away from God. But church, th this applies to all of us. This applies to New Testament Christians, 2021. We too are to get serious and stop flirting with sin. I've been there many times. Horrible place to be. You back away. You take thoughts captive. You got to quit taking it to the edge of temptation or it will be your undoing. Jesus calls us to get serious about the things that could snare us. And how do we know that? I think of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Matthew chapter 5. Look what Jesus says. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it out. Throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, obviously, we all have hands and eyeballs in here right now, right? So you know he wasn't talking literally or none of us would have these things. But sin begins in the mind. Sin begins right here and right here before it's ever committed outwardly. True righteousness, therefore, seeks to avoid sinful acts, but also sinful thoughts, because this is where it begins. Like the slide we started with, know, therefore, that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's urging us again. We will all be tempted. Take him captive. I, I do this on a constant basis. I literally imagine a spiritual trash can. Grab it. And sometimes those thoughts I take captive could be doubt. It, it's not always the obvious things. It could be pride. Sometimes it could be memories from my past life. And if I could have those memories or those dreams, then how could you possibly be a pastor? What makes you 
trash can. That's what you do. So church, take your thoughts captive before they become actions. Because if you love him and you just want to follow him, you are doing his will. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for just a short time together. And Father, I'm thankful that your word stands out, that your word convicts us. And Father, even when we're in these tough chapters and not much seems to relate to us, we can find nuggets. So Father, would you be with all of us as we think through our lives, as we think through temptation, as we think through relationships. Father, convict us and strengthen us. Help us to be examples to our children, to our families, to one another, Father. To be sealed by you is the greatest gift that uh, mankind has ever received. So thank you for your spirit. Please be with all of us as we leave. And thank you for this day. In Jesus I pray. Amen.